Hello everybody, this is Maboud, and you are listening to Lights Up, the DC Theater Podcast. Let's do it. Hello everybody, welcome back. Yeah, there's nobody else here. It's just me this time. Flying solo. In the spirit of full disclosure and transparency, something that we tend to lack these days, it seems, when we look around us, I just want to say, yes, it's been a long time. Yes, there are reasons. Yes, if you want to know what they are, I will gladly tell you all of them. Yes, it's really good to be back. And no, I'm not going to spend any more time talking about it. So... I had this question, why do we retell stories? I figured, what better way to explore that particular topic than to ask some people in theater about it? So, I did what I do. I made some calls, I sent out some emails, I came up with a list of questions. Really big, deep questions that got at the core of this idea, this enigmatic thing that I wanted to pick apart and and shake like a beehive and hold it to my ear and hear how it all works. But here's the funny thing. The answers I found weren't really the answers that I was looking for. And they weren't really new either. It was almost like I'd already heard them before. I'm Derek Goldman. My position at Georgetown is I'm artistic director of the Davis Performing Arts Center. And I'm a faculty member there. Most recently, I'm co-founder of the Laboratory for Global Performance and Politics. You have a PhD, right? I do. Does that mean I have to call you doctor? I think you've, we've long since passed that, passed that <laughs> stage on. together. Yeah, yeah. Have to In fact, if you do, it'll just give me hives and confuse me. <laughs> During the time of the recording with Derek, we were having some technical difficulties. So, for a little bit of it when he's talking, you're going to hear a bit of a difference in the sound quality. I should mention that these recordings are three separate interviews that I had. The one with Derek, I recorded over a year ago. And the most recent two... Do you want just my name? Do you want anything... Well, you'll see. Hi, I'm Louis Butelli. I'm an actor, for better or for worse. For better or for worse. Do you, uh, do you fancy yourself the storyteller? I like to think of myself as a storyteller. I mean, uh, all we can do is try. All we can do I is I like try. to think that I try to tell stories. Gotcha. Hi, I am Joe Brack. Joe Brack. That's me. That's you. That's me. Ah. I'd okay. say the one and only, but I'm sure there's others out there. I don't know. You're equity now. That's true. And I can't believe I got my own name. You got your own I name? I did. I didn't even have to take a stage name. That was one of the most shocking things to me about the whole equity process. <laughs> yeah. Because I was like, this is my name. I was like, I'm not going to be able to get it. So I was trying to think of something clever. Like, what would be a good, like, stage name? I, I'm sorry, that's such a letdown, because I didn't even come up with anything good. <laughs> but you know. Are you kidding? That was, like, the most boring part of joining Equity for me. I like, was you didn't like, have to worry about it. No. I, they were like, do you want to change your name? I'm like, to what? Yeah. John to, Stamos. That's John, what he just said. He's not Equity. He's, <laughs> he might be SAG. He's not Equity. <laughs> I'm John Stamos, too. <laughs> Do you mean the second? No, two. You should have said senior. Actually. I'm the sequel. John Stamos Senior. That's, that's my name. Senior. That'd be good. First thing you need to know before we go any further is that I'm friends with these guys, and it is extremely easy to get derailed by them because they are smart and they're funny. That's a deadly combination when you're trying to stay on task, especially for me. Well, the title of the episode is Old Works, Different Takes new lives and it's all about the stories we decide to retell why we decide to retell them 
just from that description, did you have any thoughts coming into this? Sure, a few. I mean, I don't know how organized they are, but I mean, I think that that question of returning to old stories in new forms and how we do that has certainly been, you know, at the center of my practice as a adapter and writer and creator of new work as well as a director mm-hmm. a director role you kind of inherit scripts and other people's thinking about that but then of course are sort of amplifying that and, and as a teacher where you're you know grounding students always in an understanding of the classics and what the kind of originary stories are that are the foundations of like the form and then thinking about well what matters now and how you know what are what is the contemporary resonance and urgency around telling any story and how are we in in choosing to tell the stories we tell how are we building upon in some cases maybe directly adapting an older essential story but i mean i think you know, there's the sort of adage, right, that like there are only so many stories, and so we're and that we're always telling an old story in a new way. The most obvious Shakespeare. We've been all doing Shakespeare for hundreds of years now, and I think this question comes up a lot: Why Romeo and Juliet again? Why Hamlet again? Why his most popular plays over and over again? And I think it's because. We think of them as old plays because of when they were written, but they were written for a modern or a contemporary audience of the time. So they were written for the people. Shakespeare didn't write for just a specific set of people. I would imagine he wanted anybody to be able to walk into the theater and be swept away in these stories that were not only epic and vulnerable and and, and strong and tough, but relatable, that people could understand them. And I think that's why we keep doing them. Their base is human interaction and human emotion and, and connection. It's, it's what connects us all as people, as human beings. I mean, it's a tough thing to, to really answer with any kind of certainty, but mm-hmm. it does seem to be the case that for the entire history of the human race, for as long as we've been biologically human, about 30,000 years or so, we tend to want to represent the things that we see around us and make a kind of sense out of them. So mm-hmm. we'll paint a buffalo on a cave wall. Uh, then you jump a, you know, a couple thousand years forward from that, you have uh, the Homeric stories of uh, all of the Greek myths that came kind of out of singing around a campfire, telling the same stories over and over and over again uh, for nostalgia purposes, for meaning purposes, for community purposes and this game of telephone starts to get played where the stories themselves start to transmute into something that is kind of new using the same raw material. Mm -hmm. So I think that what we're doing in continuing to do Shakespeare plays is the same thing we've always been doing as a species. We find it somehow comforting to tell ourselves the same stories again and again and again. Everyone on the internet all they can talk about is the new Star Wars trailer. Right. And I mean the first First film was in 1977, I believe. And, you know, then we had three, then we had another three. Now we're going to have more of them. People have not lost any interest. They still want to know about these characters and this universe and, and all this stuff. We're, we're still mad about it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. As we think about sort of theater specifically, well, <laughs> as we think about theater generally, um, the one thing that, that naturally happens in theater is you, you write a play, it gets produced, and it gets produ- if you're lucky, it gets produced over and over and if, over again. If you're lucky, right? If you're lucky, right. right. So, well, you write a play and it doesn't get produced. <laughs> or, yeah, over right. and over and over again. It, it dies and dies <laughs> right, a right. thousand deaths. Sure. Um, so storytelling is like the ultimate hand-me-down 
um, of uh, very few things have the kind of longevity that a good story does. So in, in a way, the natural evolution of a play is constantly being retold. I mean, it is like a story being handed down among generations, and every person that produces it, every company, every artist involved, brings to it a new perspective or a new way of thinking, not just because of the vanity of wanting to do something differently, but because, you know, there's something about each role or each moment that that speaks differently to somebody. Now, that's something that's very, very different on film, for instance. In film, a reboot is a completely different completely different thing. Do you think, how, how do you look at that difference between the two and, and see how people react to, sure. and it's not just an update, it's just a reimagining of the ideas. How do we, as theater goers, feel about seeing stories that are being adapted and, and changed and created into something modern the way a movie is updated? How does that story continue to relate to us? No, it's a great, deep, complicated question. I mean, I think that we, as theater people, the biggest thing we do, right, is we traffic in liveness, right? In the sort of live event and in a community of artists. You know, obviously there's every genre in the world and theater happens in the street and happens all over the place. But at its core, most of what we mean by theater, right, is um, uh artists coming together in a communal live space with a story and mm-hmm. sharing it with audience. And that's so already a different proposition than film um, in terms of mediation. And there's a big conversation we could have about like what, you know, whether film, how films are being watched now and on what devices and in what kind of settings and what, and privateness versus publicness of that and what the communal experience of, of, of receiving art is. But in general, in theater, we still are privileging a live communal event where in most cases, like our devices are turned off mm-hmm. and our, our attention and our focus is thrown to other human beings telling the story. And so the reason I think that's important in terms of your question is I actually think that any piece is reinvented very profoundly and in ways that aren't just like, I think sometimes when I say this, people think, oh, well, technically that's true, but basically how different really is it night to night? But I think those of us who work in in this, it is hugely, hugely, radically, profoundly different night to night. And the, the audience has everything to do with that. The events of the day, like consciously and unconsciously, have everything to do with that. I feel like the night of the week has everything to do with that. People come in in a really different place on a Saturday night in the summer in terms of where they are as people and what they're ready to receive and how they want to receive it than they might on a Tuesday night in the winter. Um, So I think that that's part one of the most beautiful, addictive, and also like elusive things about telling stories in the theater they're in the room with you like you 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 see them and i think it's funny like we've experienced this in shows that you and i have done together where um you you want to look at the audience sometimes and and go i'm here with you i can hear you like that little rapper you're undoing when your cell phone goes off the show must go on but the show knows you're here. Yeah. You know, like, we know you're here. We see you. There's lights on us, but there, it, it's here. Like, we're all alive together in this room, breathing together. And so so the question you're asking, which is a more macro question about productions and stories that move, that have a kind of a life where they move from 
you know, over time. That to me is like the big version of this little truth, which is even Clementine in the lower nine, which is running now in its three or four week run at Forum. I was back for the first time since opening the other night and I saw a radically different event mm -hmm. than the one I saw on opening night, than the one I saw in previews or whatever. And the meanings were different. <laughs> the experiences of the audience were, were really, really different. In some ways as a director, that's a maddening thing because you're like, oh, what happened to that? But you sort of live with the the life force that is that is live theater. And so I think that um, as theater people, we have to like claim this as something that we do and that relates to relates to our relationship to these old, you know, we're storytellers and the sort of and there's some you know beautiful writing from Homer to Walter Benjamin's essay, The Storyteller, just about the sort of oral tradition that we sort of live in. And I think that um, so you, you know you started by asking the question about the relationship to film, and so that gets me really thinking about a lot of things that are just you know less about a given play or text, and really that are sort of like embedded in the kind of phenomenon of of the live event and theater. You do the same play every night, but every night there's something a little different. You know, sometimes an actor doesn't feel well. Sometimes the pace is a little off. Sometimes the energy is ramped up or whatever. So it's a different show every night, but it's the same production. And the people that are in the room with you, the audience, they experience that show one time with you. And that's going to be their Julius Caesar for the rest of their life. I saw Julius Caesar at the Folger once, and this is what it was. And then we walk away after tomorrow and go, I did Julius Caesar at the Folger 49 times. And this is, it was different every night. Now, you did Julius Caesar, what was that, 14 years ago? 15 years now. 15, 15 years, years now. Mm -hmm. And in the same role. Uh, same role. I played Cassius. Uh, the same actor playing Brutus now. Anthony Cochran played Brutus then, and the same director, uh, director Robert Richmond, uh, directed it then on stage here at the Folger. Fifteen years ago. It's our fifteen-year reunion. It feels great. Um, you know, fifteen years I think is long enough to not have been so attached to the mechanics and like the day-to-day -day of it. Uh, and I think that the newness of it all is a big part of what allowed this piece to be kind of a brand new piece of theater, mm -hmm. uh, even though it's a play that we ourselves have done fifteen years ago and. People have been doing for 400 odd years now, exactly. but yes, it's it's the same. It's a redux. It's a redux inside of a redux. Mm -hmm. Do you think it, it, there's something to the archetypal stories that we see in Greek tragedies that that draws us into deciding to retell those particular ones? Well, I mean, I think there's a reason why certain stories have been with us in some form for thousands of years and have endured and that, and that there's a power that they hold. And I think that that power both has to do with the quality and integrity and lasting impact of those stories. But then there's actually something about just the sort of psychic energy that those stories carry that we may or may not even be conscious of in our culture that like, even if we don't already know that story, as some audiences at Clementine may not be, you know, just may not be coming in with any particular conscious foreknowledge of Agamemnon. Right. And yet it ex it lives mm -hmm. around them. And so I think that there's both the kind of conscious adaptation energy of let's retell this story. And then there are just these foundational stories. And of course, this is this is very influenced by our own kind of cultural positionality or the stories that are, you know, that may form some kind of bedrock or foundation for us in a kind of Western context are very different than they are, you know. But so I think there's all kinds of ways that those 
old stories may be living around us with and without our awareness of it, and mm-hmm. that writers and artists then pick up on that and you know use what's useful and powerful. And in some cases, that may be a very, very concrete and direct and explicit revisiting of you know the plot and structure of an older story and in other cases and again i think terrell for me is a really um uh, particular and interesting example because i think the those you know those plays the brother sister plays and other examples are um incredibly richly rooted in um something old and ancient and yet you don't have to know anything about that Mm -hmm. (laughs) to be um to completely understand who those characters Mm. are i mean i think that that's certainly what shakespeare himself did which was dig into source material i mean you know if one was to think about julius caesar the play that shakespeare wrote it bears some pretty uncanny resemblance to what's written in the copy of Plutarch's Lives that's downstairs here at the Folger that we looked at. Right. Uh, it's 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 pretty verbatim. It's a pretty um, pretty you know <laughs> direct lift of that story. He did the same with uh, with Hamlet. He did the same with the Lear story. Uh, he would just steal stuff and repurpose it to his own ends. Mm-hmm. So I don't think it's outside of the realm of what we tend to do. Same like we just talked about before. The Romans lifted the entirety of Greek mythology. And repurposed it to their own ends. Right. You know, so I think it's it, part of what we do. I'll give you an example of something that I've worked on uh, that kind of fits the bill. Uh, I have a little theater company called Sidicus Productions, and um, we were booked to create a show as part of a company creation festival, a little theater in Los Angeles. We had nothing. Uh, so we went to visit the Getty Villa, which is up in Malibu, and uh, they had this exhibition of Greek vases, Greek vase paintings that were out. And they had this one painting called the Pronomos Vase, which uh, depicts the cast of a satyr play, uh, which is this particular kind of Greek play uh, that uh, that kind of parodies, or it, it's where the word satire comes from, mm-hmm. a satyr play. It was the cast of a satyr play after the show at a cast party with Dionysus. We're like, that's amazing. We need to learn more about this. It turned out that there's only one satyr play that survived antiquity in its entirety and it's uh, called Cyclops by Euripides and so what we did was we thought well we can't really do Cyclops by Euripides because no one will have any frame of reference for it because for Greeks it was religious and blah 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 so we thought how do we worship Dionysus in the year 2014 and we thought maybe a rock concert would come close Mm -hmm. so we repurposed this ancient satyr play and turned it into Cyclops a rock opera it's 23 original songs about Odysseus and the Cyclops cave and people dance around and go crazy for it as if it wasn't a 4,000 year old play because what we've done is repurposed the material and injected something that's relevant to the year 2014 into it, much like Shakespeare would have done. Their base is human interaction and human emotion and connection. It's, it's what connects us all as people, as human beings. We are so interested, you know, every actor has that, like, I, I want to play the Dane mm-hmm. um, because of what he goes through and what he deals with. I mean, he's wronged by the people that he puts most of his most of his faith in so we can all understand that and we can all we know that feeling we know what it's like to be so disappointed and so horrifically wronged um and i think that's something that that will never go away that's going to be part of our human emotional palette for decades generations to come it's hundreds of years old and those people dealt on an emotional level not not as far as what we're dealing with now in like modern day america but on a base emotional human very personal level we deal with those things as they did back then and as 
you know, generations after us will deal with those same emotions, those same feelings. And that's what I think the, the crux of the whole thing is, is feelings. It's emotion. You know, it's like people often say theater has so much to do with your imagination, which I agree. But it's, I think, more about these emotional touchstones that we can all, you know, f feel. What Dan's doing in Clementine very powerfully is similar in some regards. Audiences are really responding um, to the Greek currents and Greek energy and and sense of mythology that's in the play that certainly comes from Aeschylus but also comes from New Orleans and, and music and there's all these kinds of places it's coming from. And people, of course, are coming in with very different degrees and positionalities of sort of context that they're bringing. They may be, they may not know a lot about the blues and sort of New Orleans culture, um, or they may know a lot about that, but the sort of story of Agamemnon is newer to them. And I think what Dan has done quite expertly is um, woven those in to a very powerful contemporary story about a family that's incredibly immediate and accessible, whatever your other reference points are. I wonder, do you think that some of the reasons we, we, we look to these old historical texts, all these classics, or even modern retellings of these classics, is in a way to, to, to just invoke a, an empathetic response, or at least to try and understand a, a situation that we happen to be in the middle of currently. Like, like if you look at some of the protests that are going on right now in, in Turkey, for instance, we've seen this before. I mean, this is not a new situation, and yet we have such a hard time understanding these situations. Do you think that the reason we take these old stories is to put something like, well, Clementine, for instance, like something like Katrina in a context that we can each really, really feel and empathize with? Exactly. I mean, I think you just put it really beautifully, that we need almost the critical distance that a wise, older text gives us on the present, um, and that, that in many cases that critical distance allows us access that is very hard to get on top of in trying to tell a story about what's happening to us now. I think that's absolutely the case. Brecht understood that, which was why, you know, in addition to Brecht's original plays, he was always returning to, you know, Antigone or Edward II or these places, but with it, but but really, you know, re with very pointed reimaginings of exact, you know, he was he was using those plays as a you know as as types of theatrical lessons about the present, um, and I think Breck was doing it in a very particular way. But I think in other we're doing that all the time in our in our practice, and we need to do that. It's why we go you know we go to see Coriolanus at the Shakespeare Theater. I think at least as much, if not more, because of what it has to say in Washington in 2013 about the political situation than to like honor some idea of like Shakespeare as classic writer. And I think when we're just doing the latter and we have a kind of preservationist attitude towards what we're doing, that's when theater dies. It's kind of like, oh, it's a museum, you know, it's a museum piece. When it's, right. when we're there and sort of going, this is who we are, this is this community, this is this beautiful, wise, 400-year-old text in performance, what's the collision of what these two worlds have to say to each other, that's when theater matters. 
man. <laughs> I, that's no, that's that's that a, sounded sort of you know. Oh no, but it sort of more soapboxy than I'm than I mean. But you know, that's I think exactly what you know what we're what. But that's what, what we, we need. I mean, we need to be able to put things into perspective. We need to be able to put things into context. And if we're telling the same stories over and over again, we're just imitating each other. Right. I mean, short of calling it masturbation, I don't see what else it does other than just gratify this need right. to say, oh look, we've done something. I mean, it's. We pat ourselves on the back yeah. constantly as yeah. artists and say, oh, look what we did. Yeah, yeah. We did this thing, and yet we find ourselves in this quagmire yeah. of are we, are we doing new work? Why are we doing new work? Why are we talking about old work? Why, yeah. why do these stories matter to us? I mean, the empathy thing that you were just talking about. Yeah. I feel like empathy allows us to make sense of the world around us because if it's a perspective or an idea or something that we just don't quite grasp, retelling stories gives us a context in which to understand something true about ourselves or the world around us or the world at large in a way that we were never able to understand before. And providing the context in which we as as people cohabiting this planet is to me what truly defines a great story. So do you think that if we're not creating stories that help us understand something about ourselves or the world around us. That's not to say that, you know, stories that don't change us don't have any merit. I mean, I'm always cautious about that, though I completely know. I mean, I'm always cautious about the good-bad divide, because I think we have our anointed classics that are that way for a reason, usually, and then we have all these things that are like problem childs, probably problem children, these problem child texts. I mean, you know, I'm a huge lover of Williams and O'Neill and writers who wrote some plays that everybody anointed as great, and then each of whom wrote a huge number of plays that people are like, how could the same person who wrote this write this piece of crap? And right. I'm really interested in those problem child plays, because in every case, it's not like Tennessee Williams and Eugene O'Neill woke up one day and they were stupid and didn't know how to write a play. So they were like pushing the form and do it. So you look at a play like O'Neill's Lazarus Laughed or something, which no one wants to touch or can produce or um but there's a there's stuff in that play that is brilliant on the absolute highest level of dramatic thinking and form but because it's embedded in a very hard to produce unwieldy thing it doesn't get mind much it doesn't get touched much whereas we go back you know some of those plays get done over and over again mm -hmm. because they're they're more manageable. So I think one of our one of the things that interests me as a writer, adapter, teacher, maker is like the canvas, the landscape of like brilliant work does live in a lot of places outside the great texts that we kind of keep coming back to. And so one of the I think what's one of the interesting challenges or I mean opportunities for us is like how do we tap and honor that those pieces in a context where it may be actually really hard to put on a full scale production of Lazarus Laughed, but where we, where there's something, you know, so this is just, you know, I, one of the types of ways I'm interested in working, we developed a piece about O'Neill at Arena Stage as part of the Georgetown Arena partnership with Rick Fichet and an interesting cast. And in that piece, we were looking at the journey of O'Neill's life and work. And through that, we were able to, touch some scenes and moments and ideas in plays like Lazarus Laughed uh, that 
probably will never make it to a full, you know, I'm not going to necessarily, although I'd be interested to direct Lazarus Laughed, actually. But so I think it's how we as artists, like, find those inspirations and, like, don't discount the problem children texts, I think, is really um, important. And because there's, you know, and I think lots of folks are... Um, are also, you know, those theater companies like The Mint and there are many others that are realizing and rediscovering how many really, really rich, rewarding plays there are that aren't in the canon and finding ways to bring those back to our attention, which I think is, you know, eminently worthwhile because I think more and more I was just at the TCG conference in Dallas. And we do have a big national problem, which is, you know, both with our new plays and our classics, the roster of, we just are imitating each other, you know, we, we, the roster of plays that are getting done is just not that large. Mm -hmm. And given all the material that's out there, that's, that's worthwhile. Why are we doing it? Where where do you come from with this this world of storytelling? I think there's a couple of different ways of uh, of approaching that question uh, based on what you were just saying. You know, we talked about cave paintings. We talked about Homeric poetry. Uh, there isn't a culture uh, on the earth anywhere that doesn't have somewhere in it embedded this sort of deep-seated... Uh, cycle of stories about familiar heroes on familiar things and the way that the gods interact with them and however that figures into it. The Mahabharata, you know, exists. Um, in the UK, they've got the whole cycle of uh, Arthur, Arthurian legend, the whole uh, round table stories. Uh, you know, the Greeks obviously had theirs. The Romans stole it wholesale and just renamed all the gods and redid the whole thing again. All of the three major world religions, Islam, uh, Christianity, and Judaism, have are intensely story-related. And um, what I suspect is that um, it, it's the idea of the meme. It's the idea of the thing that's repeated often enough that it takes on a kind of life of its own. Uh, in the same way that one can remember a commercial jingle from when they were a small child. Well, you can also remember a hymn. You can also remember a prayer. You can also remember the story of Sir Galahad. And uh, they're kind of embedded in our DNA, I think. And I'm not sure whether we define story or story defines us. There almost seems to be a mutuality uh, to, to, the, to that relationship. You know, without being reductive or glib about that, I think there's some real truth in that, that mm -hmm. that it's actually all on a continuum, that like the that the brand new play that doesn't make any particular claims in its lineage or in its genealogy to be adapting a particular source is in fact the inheritor of all of these kind of other plays and stories and things that are sort of already out there that it is building upon and reinventing and then of course in certain cases and certainly you know like Clementine and the Lower Nine which I know is one of the occasions of this conversation is a very specific example of looking at a very particular historical moment post-Katrina um, and this particular family um, and using uh, uh, ancient Greek story as the kind of foundation upon which that story will be will be built. What I love about theater is if you sit in the audience and you watch a show, you can choose what you watch. You can literally stare at the ceiling and watch the light cues change. And if that is your two and a half hours, that's yours. Or you can decide, I love this guy playing Lucius. So every time he comes on stage, you just watch that guy. And that's a different experience than the guy that came in with, you know, the Folger version of the script in his lap. And he's following along with the lines. It's just a different experience. You know, when you watch a film or a television show, you only see what the camera shows you. That camera is very deliberately mapped out, blocked. It's what you're seeing on that screen is all you're allowed to see. 
So for me, that's that's the immersive, beautiful thing about what we do as theater artists. I think that we're kind of, there's something in our wiring, our psychological wiring, uh, where pleasure centers are set off by story. And uh, to say nothing of history and historical you know, framework, think about being a small child. The most exciting words you can ever hear anybody say are once upon a time because it could go anywhere from there. And so often when children are learning to understand what stories are, when they ask, the storyteller always puts the child into the story. Once upon a time, there was a little girl about your age. What was her name? Her name was Nora. And, and you, you, you deliver to them story. You teach them to understand story because it fires off all these pleasure centers in the brain. So I don't know whether we create story or story creates us, but we clearly are attuned to it from the earliest uh, we can be aware of anything. Right. Right, right. Do you th- do you think there's 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 a sort of call to action that needs to be made to the community as far as like the stories we tell? Should we instead of finding ourselves turning into a museum piece? Because I mean, if you tell, I I, I run into this all the time. Well, what do you do? Oh, I'm an actor. Oh, oh, do you do like film and stuff? No, no, I mostly mostly theater. Oh, wow, and it just feels like I'm the 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 feeling I get back is. Oh, what are you doing? You're not really doing anything relevant. You guys are, you, you know, you're playing the same stuff. And I'm op- hopeful and optimistic because I think it is happening in all kinds of ways. But we have to be engaged and use the technologies and use the kind of forms of social networking and, and stuff that are out there in a pr- more productive, generative way to inspire each other to really, really do the hard work that needs to be done. So I feel like these forums like HowlRound and other places that are forming spaces for the American theater community, and you're doing it by doing this, like to sort of open up, to, to sort of think together, challenge each other, collaborate um, to um, to push ourselves in the work and to reflect on, you know, what, what the work is for and who it's for. Well, it's a, it's, a, it's a very large question. I think it's one that uh, anyone in any storytelling art form grapples with. It touches on does the theater have an obligation to be political uh, and thus current and thus topical and these sorts of things, or does it have an obligation to simply be truthful? Does it have an obligation to be empathetic, as you say? I mean, if one were to be reductive about Shakespeare and what he himself thought about uh, what plays ought to do, it's in the advice of the players, to hold as toward the mirror up to nature. Now, that can mean lots of different things. It doesn't necessarily imply a political agenda, but it doesn't uh, rule out a political agenda. But I think what it does say, is, and something that I think a child would say as well, as we said before, is that we like to see ourselves. We like to see some representation of ourselves or someone like us on stage in the middle of things. And then you wonder, how would I deal with that situation? But it's also about how we mythologize ourselves. I think about um, Anne Washburn's play, Mr. Burns, which talks about a post-apocalyptic world where the only surviving piece of culture was The Simpsons and how people take this Simpsons and redo it into ever more elaborate and mythological stakes. And I think that's part and parcel of what new storytelling does is wonders how we mythologize. And there does seem to be this this trend right now happening. Um, you just worked with Posner doing uh, doing the Tempest store. Yes. Are you familiar with uh, Stupid Fucking Bird that he did? It's fantastic. It's absolutely phenomenal. But uh, Stupid Fucking Bird by Aaron Posner is a take on Chekhov's Seagull, which is kind of shoved through the meat grinder 
and uh, called Stupid Fucking Bird, which already is, is amusing. But, um, you know, it's a fourth wall breaking, incredibly contemporary, modern take on, you know, this older play. And I think that uh, the experience of seeing it was sort of electrifying and really opened your eyes. And, you know, I don't think one can say definitively one should or should not do X, Y, and Z in the theater. That's part of what's so exciting about the theater. There are no rules. Do what you like. And that particular experiment I thought was incredibly successful. Does there need to be a separation between original and new and really lay down uh, a dividing line, do you think? I, I, you know, I think that that's a very difficult question to answer because it takes as first principles that there's a thing we should and or shouldn't do. Do you know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. I mean, I think that it's possible to adapt a Shakespeare play so far away from Shakespeare that you probably shouldn't call it Shakespeare anymore. Right. Do you know? Then just call it the new thing. It, mm -hmm. it, it is whatever that new thing is. And I don't know objectively how far in the adaptation process that line actually sits, mm -hmm. but I think all of us have experienced when it's been crossed. We're like, well, right. this is probably some other thing. You know, but I don't think there's any should or shouldn't. I think right. if there's there's a, a storyteller that's passionate and has a story they want to tell, and they should deploy all of the resources available to them and do it with verve and excitement and, and fearlessness and leave it to other people to decide what the end result is. Right. There's no need to uh, explain yourself... I mean, if if you find yourself sat in a room with somebody and a microphone that's asking you to explain yourself, then you know you you probably should be courteous and try and explain yourself. But I mean, in terms of it's a it's completely. Um, I think what you're asking is the question all artists um, should ask themselves, which is why am I doing this? Why this play? Why at this moment in time? What about our current environment requires this story? How will it be therapeutic? How can we find empathy with it? And then not worry so much about you know the distinctions of how what percentage of it is the original source material and what percentage is not. Leave that for you know somebody that writes crit criticism for a living. Right. Leave it to the academics. Leave it to the academics. Yeah, Why not? So I feel like I see there's I read stuff every day that inspires my own practice and my own mm -hmm. thinking. So I don't think it needs a call to action from any one person, but I do think it needs alertness and awareness on behalf of all of us about what we're what we're striving to do together. And I think as soon as we get into these silos where we're kind of like, we're this theater company and we do this and we're competing with this theater company and we start to congratulate ourselves on, you know, an online review that that some that one person might have put out and kind of use that to sort of uh, you know, uh, justify ourselves or pat ourselves on the back, we're heading in the wrong direction. If there is uh, anything that comes close to a dictate for making theater is to not be boring and to do something that is going to invite the younger generation to come through the door because we need them. We need them to come and share this work with us. And if it takes a familiar story trope to get a young person in the door, well, by all means, let's do that. Let's be artists, not self-indulgent troubadours. Is, I think <laughs> I could get behind that. Just, I mean, I mean, are we are we deluding ourselves by just doing a piece of pure entertainment, as opposed to something that might be a little bit harder to deal with and harder to understand? Well, this is it's something that you said um, before. Use the term relatability and uh, the ability to relate to a thing. And there's been this kind of. Uh, 
little buzz uh, out in the, 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 the tubes of the internet about the idea of the scourge of relatability. And is it our obligation to present things that are less complex merely because somebody can relate to it? Or do you offer something that is as messy and full of complexity as life itself mm -hmm. and encourage the person to see if they can spot themselves in it somewhere? This pat it's probably a subject for a, for another podcast, but uh, but that pat ourselves on the back thing. There's that whole Arthur Penn piece that sort of made the rounds on Facebook and in other places that I think is I think there's there's a it's a it's a really interesting and and complicated true problem too is there's a kind of our need to sort of reward ourselves for what we're doing creates this kind of complacency and self-satisfaction about like all the good work and all the good productions and all the stuff with five stars or four and a half stars or whatever and the sort of bigger question of like what we're what what we're doing as a community and it's not self-evident to most people in the world why people would be bothering to do theater at all so like so I think that all you know and I think many people are asking those hard questions and and those people are really inspiring to me so I don't mean to suggest that it's not happening at all but I think we need to we need to be doing that and to be wary of just kind of staying on the treadmill and kind of congratulating ourselves for doing so yeah I think one of the things that Robert did that really ignited this weird spark in my brain was that he, he made me realize that it's always relevant. What we do is always relevant. We just have to figure out why. Like, why does this matter? Because it does. It still does matter. But if you don't have the why it matters, then doing the production is not important. Um, it's like when we first started talking, I'm like, oh, Hamlet again, Romeo and Juliet again. And I could go the next 10 years and never see Romeo and Juliet again and be fine unless a director or a design team or a group of actors figured out something about that show that they could bring to light that is of our time, like mm -hmm. current, you know? Like Julius Caesar is about murder, conspiracy, power, corruption, those things, but why does it matter now? Because of like the state of where we're in, you know, when Robert always says like we're steps from the Capitol doing this, I mean that's that hits home. Like you can't, I mean you know this from walking out of the theater, you walk out the door and you look to the left and the Capitol is it's right there. So for me, that's why these old texts, not even just Shakespeare, you know, like any any of those old texts that are from, you know, from time to time produced, there has to be a reason to do them now. They're there. They're in the text, but you just have to know what it is when, when you dig into it. Verily that, motherfucker. Well, that's pretty much it for me. Do you have anything that you wanted to say or, or were like... No, I just I, I think that what you're doing here is fascinating <laughs> and really interesting. And I think that the story is... Uh, the notion of story and how it fits into the experience of being a human being is kind of really the only question to ask, especially as artists. So I applaud you for, no, for taking you. on a very, very dense issue. Why, thank you. Thank you. Louis Patelli, thank you so much, man. I really appreciate thank it. Thank you, Mabood. Yeah. Let's go do another show tonight. Let's. Yeah, right? In how many hours? Do we have? Too soon, too Jesus soon. Christ. Dr. Goldman. <laughs>
thank you so much for being here, man. I really appreciate it. It's um, a pleasure. Congratulations on getting this this really, I think, uh, important and interesting set of conversations started. I think they have a lot to offer us as a as a community. So I'm excited to be one of the one of the inaugural voices. It's been great to have you, buddy. My Thanks, pleasure. man. Thanks, man. Bye. Take care. Ah, oh, man, Joe. Yes. Thank you so much, Please, man. This thank is, you. I'm I'm so glad you, you you did this. I really am. Thank you. Oh so please, much. man. Thank you. Uh, this is this is great. Um, I'm yeah. Like I said, I'm I'm happy to be invited to do this with you, man. Okay. I just want people to keep talking to each other and keep telling their stories. All people, all different creeds, ethnicities, all, all of it, man. Like it's what makes us interesting. It, it's what makes us all human. Now that's a hell of a fucking note to go out on. <laughs> yes. It's what makes us all human. That's so God. lame. I feel that like it's <laughs> so like I I wish I wish I had a notebook and I was like, here's what I'm gonna say for the closer. Like God, just so I just wanna take off my slippers terrible. and put myself in a grave right. now. Like it's <laughs> I'll put my smoking jacket on, and I'll just sit back and puff on my little pipe and just be like, You're welcome. Guys, this is so A big thank you to Eric Shimalonis for the wonderful music he's provided, and of course to you, our listeners, for your fantastic support. If you've enjoyed the show, please take a moment to rate it and share it with your friends. Don't forget to find us on Twitter at Lights Up Podcast and like our page on Facebook. If you have any feedback, questions, or comments, or have a listener question, email us at lightsuppodcast at gmail.com. I am Maboud, and thanks for listening.